Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Just turning off sound notifications. Okay. There we are. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, broadcasting directly into your brain via the headnet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one million of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Sean Engel, and it's my job on this show to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, while giving a defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. But as you heard in my opening narration, we've jumped ahead past that end date by quite a bit. 831 centuries to be precise. Today we're going to be covering Green Lantern 1 million, wherein Kyle, who was brought to the future with the rest of the JLA, are celebrating the return of Superman from living in the heart of the sun by having a race with a Pokemon Black era Pokemon. Sound weird? Well, it should, because it's part of Grant Morrison's DC 1 million storyline that ran this same month. And because simply I'm no expert on the creative storytelling of Mr. Morrison, I've asked someone who it is to come on the show. And that someone would just happen to be the host of, or the co-host of the Fantasticast with Mr. Andy Leyland, as well as posted in its own show, 20 Minute Long Box. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to welcome on the show Mr. Stephen Lacey. Hey Stephen, how's it going today? Hi Sean, I should point out that I'm not Stephen Lacey, I'm in fact the host of just one of the guys from the 853rd century. I've come back in time. No, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> It worked for me. I would be proud to have you hosting the, the show. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like to know. I'd like to know how you're continuing to host the show since uh, technically Green Lantern didn't exist in the 30th century. He hasn't existed since, so that's uh, quite a feat. It must be a very short show. We 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 become very decompressed each week. I look at one panel of a comic. <laughs> I think that I think that would probably work. Well, that, you know, I'm certain the analysis of it would be uh, spectacular. Indeed. But, but yes, we're going to be covering not only Green Lantern issue number one million, but uh, Stephen here is going to be giving us a breakdown of the whole event of DC one million. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to see how Grant Morrison uh, was before uh, he got well, kind of controversial. So. We're going to go ahead and do what I always do here. We're going to take a little break, plug a couple of promos, probably one for Mr. Lacey's podcast. I would and, hope so. <laughs> and when we get Is back, that where you give me money? You're going to get a promo then. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as we get back, we will start in with Stephen's coverage of the first issue of DC One Million. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading Lame-Ass Podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with a man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. 
Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lame asses. I'm on a tauntaun. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain it until it has been drained of all elemental life. So, speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn.com And we are back. So, let's go ahead and jump right in. Stephen Lacey, go ahead and tell us about the first issue of DC One Million. Uh, no, I'm not gonna. Well, I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, the reason I'm not going to do that is because I'm going to take a look at the last two pages of JLA Twenty Three. This is where DC One Million started. Um, the issue is the end of the the storyline that involved uh, Starro, the conqueror. The, is it Starro the Conqueror? The Starro, the big jelly. Yeah. Starfish thing uh, invading the dreaming, and in the last two pages of this, basically all the stuff in Wonder Woman's title means that Wonder Woman's back. She's no longer a god, and Hippolyta gives up her place on the team to her daughter Diana. And suddenly, John is hit with uh, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, is suddenly hit with this massive psychic premonition: something is coming. And then the very last page is Justice Legion A arrive, announcing that they're from the future, and that's the kind of the, the cliffhanger moment that goes, "Oh, hello, what's going on here?" So that was uh, cover date October 98, and that led into the main DC One Million series, which comprised of four issues, which were released almost weekly across the month of November 98, which was a, a five-week month. Because this was a crossover from DC in the late 1990s, quite literally every other book published by DC tied into this, um, although with a surprisingly high hit rate of awesome. So the way DC did their crossovers, I think from basically zero hour through to about the end of the century was they would have a weekly series in a month, normally the November. So each week you'd get one part of the series and then all the books would tie into that. Think of, obviously, with Zero Hour you had all the Zero issues 
with um, trying to think what other crossovers there were. There were uh, the Final Night crossover yes. took the same uh, path. Uh, less successful crossovers like Day of Vengeance, which is it Day of Vengeance or Day of Judgment? Day of Judgment. Yeah, Day of, Day Judgment. of Judgment. I get confused between that and the Infinite Crisis one. Yeah, Day of Judgment came out at, well after this, and it uh, dealt, yeah. I think, with the resurrection of or the putting Hal Jordan to the body of the Spectre. So yeah, yeah, um, and, and obviously the far less successful Genesis. <laughs> oh, which will all just um, move along. Nothing to see here. The, the less said about that, the better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, everything ties in. But what really makes this one stand out is the high level of coordination. So you've got this core series, which was written by Grant Morrison, with pencils by... Uh, now, I, can, I struggle with this. Balsameeks? I, I thought it was Semeckis. That's well, how I pronounced it. The eyes before the K. Okay. Um, unless I've been reading... No, it is. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to guess Balsameeks or Semex. I'm not quite sure. Okay. And with inks by Prentice Rollins, so I can put and basically, with this, you've got four issues and then 34 tie-in issues, and pretty much every issue was plotted or coordinated by Grant Morrison, which then led to a very high level of consistency across these issues. If you read closely, and I've, I've done some reading from people who have looked at everything, there are a couple of minor plot points that don't quite add up. Um, and an artistic error in the one of the Superman issues, which uh, shows a Green Lantern where there shouldn't be one, but more of that later. But the, the idea for this crossover basically came from a joke thrown out at the writers' conference. Following the success of the Zero issues that tied into Zero Hour, Morrison jokingly suggested that surely the next extreme would be a month where every issue was the millionth issue. And much like when Peter David joked about Magneto ripping all the adamantium out of Wolverine's body, what was supposed to be a throwaway line kind of gained traction. And suddenly this crossover is born. The idea is that every issue this month was numbered 1 million and it was cover dated November 85271. That's the year 85271. And it, that would have been the month when DC would have published their first comic numbered 1 million, assuming that action comics would never have been cancelled, renumbered, or double shipped ever. Unfortunately, yeah, we know that's never going to happen. Well, all three of those things happened. <laughs> It has been cancelled, it has been renumbered, it did double ship after this crossover, so yeah, blowing that out of the water. But yeah. Yeah, in November 98, it was absolutely fine. Um, and yeah, so it, Morrison's coordination would sometimes be full plotting because of the way that certain things needed to happen out. Uh, in the case of the Hitman issue, Hitman 1 million, which is a, a fantastic issue, he basically turned to Garth and he said, okay, mate, you take the piss. And that was his direction. <laughs> Which is why that Hitman issue just rips the whole thing to pieces. Um, oh, right. And I think only Peter David got away with ignoring that. I know that Dan Jurgens was really not happy about being dictated what to write in his books, and that led to him. Uh, I think he sort of uh, that contributed to him leaving the Superman books. Hmm. Uh, Mike Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, I'm sure, will come to this in years to come on uh, from Crisis to Crisis. But Peter David just sort of ignored it and did this great story about Supergirl as a six-year-old superpowered girl tearing up the cosmos because she's a six-year-old and doesn't know any better. <laughs> See, uh, the, the great thing about this is they just recently collected all of these in, a, in an amazing omnibus. So, yeah, yes. if, if you want to go check that out, uh, you know, go pick up the omnibus if you've got money, obviously. But yeah, this this is an amazing amount of work that they got to plot all this and make it work together. So kudos to Grant Morrison for doing this. And what I like is, is the generosity of it. As we'll see as we go through the episode, a very minor character called Resurrection Man, who I'd imagine most listeners will probably only know because he was one of the new 52 original titles. 
uh, he plays quite a major role in this. Um, a character I didn't know existed, Kronos, who apparently was a new version of the old villain who was a bit more of an anti-hero, only had 12 issues in the late 90s. He has a, a, a small but important role to play in the climax of the whole thing. And it's just like, it's it would be very easy to go, oh yeah, this series, no one's buying it, okay, you just do your own thing. But to actually know, okay, I'd like you to be to get this plot point in so that he has a role to play. I thought that was really rather generous of him to spend that time to make sure everyone has a part to play. And also, that it reads so well. Uh, it, you didn't cover it on this show, so um, you've almost got away with it. But remember the Millennium crossover? Uh, yes, I do. And how DC promoted that as the most coordinated crossover ever. And yes, it was very well coordinated. It was also crap. Uh, that's a polite way of putting it. Yep. Um, so, you know, coordination, great readability, really, really poor. To have this level of readability and the level of coordination, I think, is a really great thing. Sure. Um, so shall we take a look at DC 1 million issue 1, where Let's. it all begins? So, uh, the event itself kicks off in DC 1 million issue 1. So it starts, and it actually starts three days after the arrival of the Justice Legion. And it's this great sort of pre-credit sequence of Rosorial and Plastic Man, so Zoriel is the uh, Earthbound Angel who's part of the JLA. They're racing to the Monitor Womb, where they are bombarded with reports from the city of Montevideo, which has been wiped out by an attack, and there's over a million people dead, and yeah, just total disaster. Three days prior to that, in the now, as it were, and the Justice League debate the arrival of the Legion, which includes future Flash John Fox, who had been set up in the Flash title, and the android Hourman, who had previously appeared in JLA in the Fantastic Rock of Ages story. The Legion explained their world where each member of the Legion is responsible for the safety of a different planet in the solar system. The solar system has two suns now. There's the main sun and there's Solaris, the artificial sun. And what you need to know about Solaris is he used to be the greatest enemy of the Superman dynasty. So not just Superman, but the legacy of his name throughout decades, centuries and millennia. But he, so he used to be the greatest enemy, but he's since been reprogrammed to be good. And basically now functions as like a server bank for the solar system. And his guardian, the person who maintains him is Starman One Million. I'm going to, a lot of the future characters I'm just calling so-and-so One Million because otherwise it's confusing. Mm-hmm. The reason why the Legion have come back in time is that Prime Superman has spent thousands of years in his fortress of solitude inside the sun and will shortly re-emerge into the solar system at this time of great celebration they want the original justice league to be there when he re-emerges suddenly superman realizes the shocking truth superman prime is his own future self and he's alive in the year 85,271 ad now that's a wtf moment <laughs> an agreement is made that the main league minus batman and martian manhunter who don't want to go, uh, will travel to the future and they'll uh, leave the reserve team behind, consisting of Steel, Huntress, Plastic Man, Zoriel and Firestorm, uh, and the Justice Legion will also remain as well, just in case anything should happen in those few seconds they're away. Hold on. The main team leaves, they're supposed to return only a few seconds later and they don't and it all goes wrong. Isn't that Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four run? <laughs> I'm thinking it is. Or pretty much, you know, uh, you know, pretty much take any timeline of Doctor Who. You can probably do the same thing as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, however, Batman 1 million seemingly betrays our Batman, capturing his psyche to send it into the future with the others. The rest of the League spend time with their Legion counterparts, except for Green Lantern. He discovers that, sadly, there is no Green Lantern legacy across the centuries. The Teen Titans, who at this point are Supergirl, Tempest, Arsenal and Jesse Quick, 
Uh, they monitor an arms sale involving the trade of four rocket red suits to Vandal Savage. They attack but are swiftly taken down by the immortal and deadly Savage. The League is successfully sent into the future, but when Our Man attempts to bring them back, his programming corrupts and he releases what will become known as the Our Man Virus, a technical plague that takes control of humans and machinery, leaving telltale black circuitry on their skin. As they're alone on the Watchtower, Zoriel, Huntress, Steel and Plastic Man are the only ones uninfected. In the future, the future Vandal Savage toasts the success of the first part of his plan with his partner, Solaris, who has regained his evil nature and plots to eradicate the Superman dynasty forever. That, that's an incredible setup for the storyline. It's, it's a very heady concept. The idea of, I, I mean, I can't even imagine a hundred years in the future. It's, it's hard to imagine the changes that will happen in, in that amount of time. For mm-hmm. Morrison to come up with the idea and the concept of over 830 years in, or 830 centuries in the future is just amazing. And he does it really well. It doesn't seem out of place. There are some things that seem very plausible but it's it's just amazing uh, this is a good start up to the issue I, or a good start up to the storyline i have to say uh do you want to go through some notes for this do you have any uh specific notes here or? um in, in terms of the green lantern related stuff i think the key thing we get across is that there is no green lantern legacy um it's not necessarily set up so much here but it's also revealed there's no martian manhunter legacy as well otherwise all the main characters, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, they all have these future counterparts that have a, a legacy uh, going on after them. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, in recent episodes, back in uh, issues uh, 98 and 99, when Kyle traveled forward to the 30th century, we found out that there was no Green Lantern legacy there either when he dealt with the mm. Legion of Superheroes. So you would assume that unless something happened in that timeline, there wouldn't be any uh, Green Lantern in the 853rd century either. But it's yeah. nice they carry that on. Um, I think I, I think it was a great idea to start the story out in media res with having the first opening salvo of the book be the uh, destruction in Montevideo or Montevideo. Uh, it's, it's a really graphic image here, especially with John holding one of the, uh, burn corpses. And you know that John is obviously, <laughs> he he's doing something pretty impressive here because you see the burning buildings and everything around him. So this is obviously yeah. affected John a lot. You would kind of feel that's probably the last place he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in, in terms of the structure of the crossover, it's great that we have this here because although there's the virus released at the end, there's very little threat in the present day. And in fact, the, the, these events kind of take place early on into the second book. Mm-hmm. So it gives us a great ticking clock to work with the idea that things are already going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I agree, you know, they set it up where throughout most of the story, it's all very quiet. It's all just a simple here, come to the future. We know what we're doing. Everything's going to be great. You're going to meet the Superman prime. And I love, uh, what is it? That panel? I I guess page nine of the first book where we see uh, Superman realizing that he's still alive in the 853rd century. And that is just a, 
you know, mm. Samik's does a great job with drawing the characters near and also distinguishing the, uh, the future versions and the uh, present day versions from each other. There's a definite difference between the two Superman, but you can see a bit of similarity that there might be a lineage between them. He does a good job defining him. So I like that. Yeah. I, I think um, it has to be said, I think Samik's is an excellent artist. Uh, it's a very classic style almost being used. It doesn't seem to have dated, but you know that I, I can't think of a single artist working for Marvel or DC say maybe Ed McGuinness, but that's McGuinness's own thing, that would do anything like this. I think both companies have gone in different directions from what this uh, mm-hmm. art style was. Well, we'll, we'll get into the Green Lantern issue uh, with the artist there who's... Uh... Uh, who I really enjoyed as well. And he's gone on to do a lot of work with uh, mm. DC and Marvel as well. But um, uh, one of the things I just wanted to point out uh, when the Superman for the, uh, for the 850, the, you know, Superman 1 million, I love the fact that when he takes off in flight, that he says the line of up, up and away that just, again, this makes me think that Morrison really does have respect for the characters and he's bringing in that sort of classic feel to these very futuristic characters. So I'm enjoying it. And, uh, having Vandal Savage at the end as kind of the, uh, the linking villain. The, yes. The big bad between them. It, it makes perfect sense because yes, he's immortal and you would think that he would have survived into this timeline. So the fact that he's working throughout this period of time to make these things happen is just great. And it's, it's it's kind of convoluted because in the end, Vandal Savage ends up, you know, the, the what happens to Vandal Savage at the end of the story. Uh, it, it's a really it's a really satisfying ending. So but yeah. we'll get to that soon. Um, just a few other random things. One of the things that I absolutely love about Morrison's JLA is, yes, it was the big seven book. You It brought all the big heroes back into it as it really should always be. But it's the secondary characters in it that really made it for me. I love the character of Zoriel. Um, I love the fact that Huntress was a part of the team, especially, and the way that her relationship with Batman played out through JLA. Um, I absolutely love the fact that Oracle is their guy. Um, I, I think of this and of World War Three, where she's coordinating the entire planet. I, I adore that. And... So yeah, the, the sort of the second level of heroes in it are really important to Morrison's run, and they play a big role within this. And it's just taking those one pages, like on uh, page ten, just for a one page scene between Nightwing and Oracle discussing the situation, or that one pager with the Ted Knight span, uh, Ted Knight Starman discussing the fact that he's got a future one, whilst on the phone with Jay Garrick talking about the legacy of the JSA. Um, it's these little touches that really flesh it out. Oh, yes. And make it feel like it's affecting the whole DC universe rather than uh, one city or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's it's Morrison being incredibly respectful to the entirety of the DC universe. And it, it, it I agree. The level of coordination that you see in this uh, is something that you very rarely see, especially when you're incorporating various titles with various editors and various writers. So it's it, it's it's an impressive feat that they pulled off. But if you're ready, we'll go ahead and uh, go from where you went, and I'll go into my synopsis of uh, Green Lantern 1 million, if you don't have any more notes. Go for it. All right. Well, Green Lantern 1 million was cover dated again on November of 1998. but uh, No, it yeah, wasn't. 
it says it was cover dated of November of 85271. So yes. Um, uh, Mike's Amazing World says it was released in September 2nd, 1988, but I'm going to assume that the date is 85271 as well. The cover price was $1.99 US and 295 Canada, and the title was Starcrossed. The writer was Ron Mars. They had guest artists of Brian Hitch as penciler, Paul Neri as inker, and Andy Lanning as inker. Colors and separations this time out were Robert Schwager. Letterer was Chris Iliopoulos. Assistant editor was Chuck Kim, and editor was Kevin Dooley. And the story opens with Green Lantern Kyle Rayner streaking through space, heading towards the Starman space station, orbiting the super solar computer Solaris, trying to say that three times fast, which sets in the area where Uranus once was. Pausing for juvenile giggles, if anyone were to do that. Only Wally West. (laughs) That's true. Entering the station, Kyle is suddenly surrounded by a myriad of tiny floating machines, freaking the last lantern out. But before he can blast the minibots, the MC for this event, a blue-skinned alien named Bob, okay, arrives to tell him that they are just forms of transmission devices, not unlike cameras for your future primitive or for your primitive self. Bob directs Kyle into the main chamber of the station, where they are surrounded by thousands of varying alien races, all of whom have turned out to see this event with the 20th century Green Lantern. Kyle's impressed by the turnout, but Bob says the crowd isn't actually here, as they're all viewing from their respective homes, and these are merely solid light projections of the many species. Moving through the crowd, Bob tells Kyle about his challenge, a race against a quote-unquote mock turtle another hard light projection that looks like an outcast from a Japanese PS2 import game. The two take their positions at the starting line, and at the word go, they head through an energy portal into the raceway. The Mock Turtle takes an early lead by blasting Kyle into a futuristic landscape, but the Last Lantern is about to lose to a bunch of light as he pours on the speed and grabs his opponent with a ring construct octopus. Kyle rockets into the lead, but the Mock Turtle isn't out of the race yet, and as he lashes a light construct around Green Lantern's wrist, dragging itself behind him. Passing through another portal and narrowly missing two Jedi Knights engaged in their brutal lightsaber battle, oh wait, that didn't happen, Kyle finally knocks the turtle off of him by dragging it through a ring construct bridge. Believing he's won, Kyle passes through the final portal and reappears in the Starman space, space Station, ready to hear the ovation of the crowd cheering his victory. Unfortunately, what he gets is the station with the power out and the various menagerie that Starman has collected free and roaming the station. Acting quickly, Kyle rings up the beasties to construct bubbles and heads out to find the power source for the station. Eventually, Kyle comes across something that looks all warp quarry, so he decides to jump it with some energy from his own ring. Making sure he doesn't completely drain the ring, Kyle gets the systems back online, only to witness the ominous message left from the living sun, Solaris. The solar computer tells Starman that the time displaced Justice League suspects nothing, and that with his help, he will have his revenge. Rightfully, Kyle realizes that this could spell trouble, so ringing up... a disguise? Kyle heads out to relate the betrayal to Superman and the Justice League. Unfortunately, he's intercepted by Solaris, who blasts Kyle with a massive solar eruption, knocking him into the atmosphere of the nearby planet Mars. But before our emerald hero can become a gooey splotch on the Martian surface, a pair of sandy hands rise from the surface, catching the crashing Kyle and dropping him gently on the ground. To be continued in Martian Manhunter 1 million. What do you think about this story, Steve? 
I love it. Mm-hmm. I particularly now, unfortunately, I was out of comics when Brian Hitch and Paul Neri became big. I guess they did a lot of work with Mark Miller uh, with the Authority, and they had a bit of a run on uh, on the Fantastic Four, didn't they? Well, uh, Mark, no, not Mark Miller. Sorry, Brian Hitch made it big, being the penciler for the Authority with Warren Ellis. Oh, writing. Warren Ellis, that's so. Right. When the Authority launched, that twelve issues that Warren Ellis wrote. Uh, Hitch was the penciler for that. And then when Mark Miller took over, it was Frank Quitely. Uh, and then uh, Hitch, the big thing Hitch did with Miller was the Ultimates. Yes. That's and that, that was the point where he was not only a big artist, he was possibly one of the biggest in the business. Unfortunately, it was then coupled with the uh, insane delays that came with his art. He became more and more detailed with what he did. Um, and unfortunately... I, like many, many, many people, went, yeah, it's worth the wait, because it kind of was. Mm-hmm. But it did then allow lesser artists to get away with um, long delays on stuff. And then, yes, they did some... Uh, he, he has He's never really done anything as big as that since. Uh, there was the... He did a run on Fantastic Four, which didn't go down too well, and both he and Miller bailed by the end of it. Um, and then uh, he did Half of Age of Ultron, which was rubbish. Um, and he's now working on his own project, but yeah, the the Ultimates is really where he's probably best known for. Yeah, that's that's true. I forgot. I I knew I knew he did the Ultimates, and I completely forgot to mention that. But yeah, Hitch's artwork in this is just amazing. There are some really detailed shots, and some of the splash pages here with the yeah. various aliens on them. They're glorious. Uh, do you want to go? I've kind of got notes that sort of go through the issue uh, page by page. Do you want to kind of? Yeah, that, get that? that's. That's how I'm used to it. Just, I, I think for me, looking at this um, Hitch artwork, it's a much cleaner line than uh, I think I'm more used to seeing. I, I, there is less detail in the artwork, but what is, is I think far more definite. I think it's fantastic to see this stuff from, what, 16 years ago. Now, um, pre-authority, pre-ultimates, it's just fantastic. It's a reminder of why he was such a great artist, um, mm-hmm. even though there are many people who have imitated his style and developed it further since. Oh, yeah. Well, and as, especially you can tell how amazing an artist he is, but just by that uh, page two and three, that opening splash of the Starman yeah. Observatory, that is just great. And you say that his detail isn't that intricate. I I don't know. Just looking at it, it's not overly detailed, but the, the line work they've got on the, on the station makes mm. it look so oh. realistic. It looks like they're actual plate panels on there it, it it looks glorious and i i i don't necessarily often comment on the coloring but i think that we're in this area of computer coloring where they're able to yeah. give it uh, the computer coloring is actually looking good and they're able to give it a, a lot of different texture and sheen and uh, various shades so it it just looks amazing this is just a beautiful two-page splash here yes and not just that but the, the dc1 million event used a lot of um computer generated artwork especially on the cover so if you go back to the cover once you've got a brian hitch green lantern that's a fully cg rendered space station behind him mm-hmm. whereas on the double page splash the cg elements are the the lightning in the middle between hans it and then on the sun to really help that contrast going uh, but a lot of the comics would have these cg elements and obviously the, the dc comics logo on the cover mm-hmm. is very much cg and of its time oh yes say. the the weird lightning effects or the yeah. silly string type stuff yeah that's and i'm sorry but e- even the, the the gentle curl that we have now looks better than that 
I will, I will not disagree with you, sir. Um, oh, my mission to make you say good things about current DC Comics is working. <laughs> um, I do like that uh, on the next page, on page four, that uh, in the 853rd century, uh, ringleaders uh, still wear uh, ringleader outfits. That's kind of nice. And they also look like uh, horrible uh, Italian stereotypes as well. So, yeah. We've That's got an that Italian here. stereotype? Well, he kind of has got the... Okay, well, maybe I... <laughs> I think you're letting a little of yourself go there, Sean. Sadly, maybe I am. Uh... Yeah, don't be blue, bald, and have an iffy handlebar moustache. Sean, I think you're Italian. Uh, I was thinking more just the the way he looks, the face, but yeah, blue is probably not out. Yeah, sorry, my Italian listeners, all. <laughs> Man, maybe you one need of to you. apologize to Signor Demanzo now. <laughs> uh, he never listens to my podcast anyway, so I'm fine with that. Um, the next page, pages five and six. This is why I think Brian Hitch is just. Uh, has to be one of the most amazing artists out there. Just look the various number of aliens on here. Mm. Uh, the the different designs, they're all very unique. They all have really bizarre looks to them. I especially like the one on the, uh, on I guess, page five, the alien with the sort of translucent brain. That the is pink just... guy, yeah. That's the one I'm looking at. Just lovely. Mm-hmm. And there's an alien over there that kind of has... And this is something that you wouldn't really expect on the next page, the alien that has the fin for the head. Mm-hmm. The fin isn't, you know, like uh, what you'd see with uh, the Zudarians, like characters like Tomar Ray from the Green Lantern, where the yeah. fin is exactly straight up. It's or sort Savage of dragon. Yeah, it's sort of uh, flipping to the side. So it, it looks like it has weight and gravity. So I love this. This is just beautiful artwork. I can't say enough about Hitch's artwork. And it, it makes me want to go and pick up... Uh, the ultimates just to see what see what it looks like in there the next page like i said the you know the the storyline through this is kind of minimal a, a race with green lantern is yeah you would expect something like that with a flash but you know i don't mind the storyline because the artwork is just so amazing but the mock turtle thing just a weird like i said it has a design like a weird pokemon type character it should be said, it's a mock turtle as in M-A-C-H. Yes, mock turtle, not mark, I'm sorry. Or, or mock. Yes. But, uh... The... It, it, it's a bad pun, but it's nicely done. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's the kind of pun that, uh, punish name that Morrison would come up with time and time again. <laughs> uh, you just need to look at pretty much any of his superhero works and you'll see things like that in there. Although, rather embarrassing, I can't think of any specific examples right now. Not a problem. Um, we move on in the story and we get the, uh, the mock turtle and green lantern rushing through these various, uh, different alien landscapes. And again, Hitch's artwork is just amazing. You know, yeah. looking at page, I guess maybe 10 or 11, they're not always numbered, but where he crashes in that sort of pink crystalline, uh, rock that's out page nine. Yeah. Page nine. Yeah. That's just, it's all just amazing. Then it, it's kind of like they just went right for the next five or six pages. Here's some captions. Go crazy with the artwork on it. It's just a fast, fun, almost wacky racist star thing, like the one where Carl builds a bridge just for the Mac Turtle to smack into. Mm-hmm. It's it, it is glorious, and uh, you know with the various different uh, 
areas of the race that he goes through. There's a jungle area. There's that pink crystalline area. They go through a uh, sort of volcano level. It's they almost like Middle they... Zealand. <laughs> oh wait, no, that was that was a Lego movie. <laughs> oh, I, I, I I'm gonna go ahead and do a tangent. I love the Lego movie. I was so and uh, yes, darkness. <laughs> no parents. I super hate you. Kinda rich. <laughs> Helps a lot. Uh, sadly, Green Lantern was completely, completely misrepresented in that. But, <laughs> but you know, anyone jo- got any kryptonite? <laughs> Poor Joe. I would rather kill himself than hang out with Green Lantern. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it was the representation of the Green Lantern from the uh, from the movie. So, well, yeah, you can kind of, kind of give Superman an out for that. Um. But then, you know, after the race, Cal comes back to the Starman Observatory and finds, again, some more really wonderfully rendered aliens that I guess Starman is now like the keeper of like the cosmic zoo, I guess. Mm. Uh, I didn't read the Starman one million uh, issue, so I don't know exactly if this ties into anything. But I, I haven't read it, but my understanding is basically the meeting between the Ted Knight Starman, so the original Golden Age one in the present, oh, wow. and the Starman one million um, it, it's almost like a character piece, two-hander, um, really getting into the character of him and sort of trying to, without him ever coming out saying, oh, hey, I'm an evil Starman from the future, understanding why he's taken the decision to be the betrayer. Okay. And, and what his role has led him to do that. That's my understanding from just a brief crazy I read. Okay. Um, we get Kyle coming into, you know, recharge the... Or- uh, put the power on, which leads to the uh, uncomfortable, uh, you know, recorded message from Solaris telling him, you know, what he has planned for the Justice League. Which what uh, your voicemail? <laughs> exactly. You know, if you've got evil messages from evil tyrant stars, don't just leave them sitting around for anyone to hear. That's not very bright. I mean, if news if uh, news international existed in the year eighty five thousand whatever, then they'd have hacked that baby <laughs> like anything. That that is true. Uh, I don't get on the next page. Maybe it was just a chance for Hitch to draw the costume <laughs> in a different way. But why? And and his explanation. Kyle gives an explanation of, oh, I needed to come up with the disguise. Maybe this isn't the best one. No, it's not the best one. You just basically changed the colors of your uniform. Everyone knows you're the only Green Lantern, and there's this green streak, you know, blasting through you know the solar system. What the heck is the reason for the change of this costume? But so I, I've got to do what I can to disguise myself. So slightly different Green Lantern. No, I'm not the Carl Rainer Green Lantern. I'm the John Stewart Green Lantern. Because <laughs> the first thing that happens in the Martian Manhunter One Million is John goes, "Well, this costume's a bit crap. Let's revert to the normal one." Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's. I guess it's a way for Hitch to draw it. But the the classic costume that Kyle came up with from like issue 51 past or 51 uh, prior on to that or on to that is just, it, it's so iconic and this just looks weird. Yeah. But it allows, uh, it allows Kyle to have his first meeting with Solaris and uh, we will have Kyle meeting with Solaris again. You know, unfortunately his first meeting doesn't really go too well as he gets. No. <laughs> I, and I just love that panel where Solaris is there for the first time. It should be said, although Solaris is a son, he's a very small son. Mm-hmm. He's sort of like the size of a couple of city blocks. Now, did uh, he? Uh, they say he was uh, 
in the area originally where the planet Uranus was, did mm. he did he replace or is he just sort of orbiting Uranus? Or no, I, again, a... I understand one of the books reveals that Uranus doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it possibly, I don't know, I'm conjecturing. I seem to recall reading that it was destroyed as one of Solaris's attacks. Okay, but I might be completely wrong on that. And people who read the issues that I haven't read, and there there are big chunks that I haven't liked the Starman issue, like all the Batman issues, um, the Wonder Woman, the Flash, it might be going, oh no, no, it was this. So sorry if I've got it wrong, but I am vaguely recalling that that's what it is. Well, unfortunately, again, we don't have the omnibus in front of us, so sadly, no. we can't give you you know the entirety of the. Uh... DC one million crossover, but the, it ends with uh, Kyle crashing into Mars and these giant sandy hands reaching up and uh, saving. Mm. I w- I tried to hunt down the uh, DC one million issue for Martian Manhunter, but unfortunately my local comic book shops are sorely lacking, so I couldn't find it. So do you have any kind of just a quick synopsis on what was going on in the Martian Manhunter issue? Um, yeah, I I do. Although, I do we want to maybe just sort of quickly wrap up thoughts on the issue? Yeah. Before we dive into that, because we we can see it's not getting back to this one. Um, for me, I thought this was just a, the perfect idea of what a tie-in issue should be. You take one character, give him his own adventure in the context of the crossover, have a bit of fun with it, and then towards the end, have a, some element of a plot reveal that means that it is an important part of the crossover rather than, oh, hey, we've got a month off. It's Green Lantern in the future. He's doing some racing and we'll be back to our real adventures next month. Yeah, I agree. It was, you know, it, without that little uh, sting at the end with uh, Kyle meeting Solaris and hearing that there was a plot against the Justice League, this would have been just a sort of one-off throwaway issue. But the way that they incorporated into the whole is really nice. They could have just made this a a simple Green Lantern doing wacky things in the future, but no, it links into the DC one million storyline and it does it really well. Mm. Uh, it, it is a good, a good issue. Um, so the Martian Manhunter issue picks up straight after this. Um, it was written by John Ostrander with art by Tom Mandrake, who would be the key creative team on the Martian Manhunter solo series, which hadn't yet started at this point. So prior to this, there had been the Martian Manhunter Zero issue. Then there was the Martian Manhunter One Million issue. And then finally, Martian Manhunter issue one was the third published issue. A little out Which of order. Even Marvel can't make numbering that crazy. <laughs> one million point one. That's what will be coming out next. Well, they'll be doing one million point INH or something like that, because Dearly. letters are a perfectly valid form of numbering. <laughs> anyway. Um, Try and short, figure out where that goes in your collection. Uh, in short, the Martian Manhunter issue is the story of John Jones and what has happened to him between the present day and, or, or sort of the, the near future of the DC universe, um, and the one million thing. And you find out that it's his his hands that have caught uh, Kyle, and he catches this guy. He doesn't even know that it's Kyle until he's looking and going, "Hold on, you look familiar." And then he remembers it all and he reverts the costume. It's literally one of the first things he does. And then you've got this great page of Marshall Mountain to rising out of the sand. So the, the sand of Mars forms his head and he's actually merged with the planet. And basically John then tells his story. It's this great centuries spanning epic of what John does. Um, this wonderful conflict that he has with, um, an enemy called the swarm who is this insectoid race that he travels for centuries into the, 
out in space, discovers them, then battles them all the way back to Earth over centuries of nothing but fighting. Uh, then a conflict with Darkseid and Darkseid ravaging, uh, uh, ravaging, first of all, Mars turning into apocalypse, a new apocalypse, then attempting to destroy the Earth. And uh, again, there's another brilliant double page spread of Martian Manhunter beating up Darkseid oh, yes. on Mars with other futuristic uh, heroes fighting parademons and things like that in the background. Um, uh, basically, the, uh, a boom tube opens uh, as a trap for Darkseid and Martian Manhunter takes Darkseid into it and it takes them into the heart of the source. So beyond the source wall to the source itself. Um, the source then basically goes, right, Darkseid, this is your end, and takes him away and uh, grants Martian Manhunter a boon. And basically it says, John's boon is I want Mars back as it was. And the way that happens is the source merges John with the planet itself. So he heals it, turns it back from Apocalypse into Mars as he remembers it. And then you, towards the end of the issue, in the last couple of pages, you get some important plot things. Um, you, re- you find out that there's this plan which has been made. In his words, plans have been made from farther, far further back than you can imagine. And then he shows, he reveals something called the Knight Fragment. That's Knight as in K-N-I-G-H-T as in the Starman Dynasty. Mm-hmm. And it's buried somewhere on Mars and Vandal Savage is looking for it. Uh, and then he needs Green Lantern to uh, then go and do some other stuff. He's got a destiny on Jupiter. And at the very end of the issue, there's like a handover. In the same way that the Green Lantern book handed over to Martian Manhunter, there's a handover to Resurrection Man 1 million. So Resurrection Man, if you're not familiar with the character, he's this great concept who just doesn't seem to have sold. And the idea is uh, Mitch Shelley is this guy, and if he dies, he'll resurrect and he'll get a new superpower each time he dies. So he, he's effectively immortal. And so it's revealed that he's still alive in the year one million. He's like tactician for the JLA at this point. And still the thing of he dies and he's resurrected, he gets a new power. And then the Resurrection Man issue is basically the Resurrection Man story and the idea of setting up that he and Vandal Savage have been locked in combat for millennia. Because obviously Vandal Savage is immortal and can't die. So just this great stuff. And then that leads into uh, JLA, uh, JLA, DC one million number four. Um, unfortunately, Resurrection Man's actually dead at that point, but that was perfect. Makes sense. But yeah, this is, uh, you know, the the interconnectedness of this is just amazing. This is something mm. you don't really see that much in comics, and I, I completely enjoy it. Um, do you want to go ahead and take a quick little break here? And uh, once we get back from that, we will go ahead and uh, start in coverage of the rest of the DC 1 million. Yeah, it's been like half an hour since we last plugged one of my shows. Yeah, that's true. I think we need to do another one. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll take a little break and plug a promo in for another one of Mr. Lazy's fine, fine podcast. And when we get back, we've got issues three, two, three, and four of DC One Million. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. 
20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back! You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for our podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And once again, we are back. Let's take a look at the last part of DC 1 million. Stephen, again, the floor is yours. Cool. I've got a quick synopsis of uh, DC 1 Millions number 2 and 3, which is set almost exclusively in the uh, present day and deal with the Owlman virus and uh, various things involving what's going on in the now. So the future storyline is kind of off to one side and taking place in the time, uh, lots of the time book. So, so as I said, the next two parts of the core series deal with the events in the present day. The devastation in Montevideo is revealed to be caused by Vandal Savage, who launched a weaponized rocket red suit at Washington. Unfortunately, the Hourman virus then made it go off course, which is why it landed in Montevideo instead. He threatens further destruction in an attempt to take over the world, but the combined efforts of the Justice Legion, the Martian Manhunter, and other heroes managed to stop him. Meanwhile, Superman 1 million, with the age of, with the aid of the Atom, works to cure the Hourman virus. Now, uh, Superman 1 million realises that he needs a computer more advanced than any in existence in 1998 and quickly realises that the release of the virus was planned by Solaris. In order to beat Solaris in the future, he must first build and create Solaris in the past. Solaris's body is created, at which point the Alman virus migrates to Solaris, coalescing into the evil son's intelligence. So, yeah, the virus was basically his intelligence spread across the world, hiding, as it were. Starman 1 million, who is then revealed to be the traitor to the Justice Legion, redeems himself when he sacrifices himself to implant his cosmic rod into Solaris, which both powers him up uh, to full power, but also sends him into a black hole that will take the Sun's centuries to escape from. So with the present day saved, with Vandal Savage defeated and Solaris removed, the focus then moves to the future. Um, so yeah, so that, that was the present day stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the, yeah, I agree that the two, the two issues here are pretty much, you know, the Justice League and the Justice Legion A, or just yeah, the Justice Battalion A. What are they called? Legion A. Justin Legion A. Uh, you know, dealing with the effects of the Hourman virus. There were some nice little bits on here, and there was a bit of seeding of extra storylines, or uh, dealing with stuff that also happened around this era. Um, I'm thinking uh, uh, in issue two, where am I thinking? Page 15, I have in my notes. There's... Uh, some seeding about future timelines, uh, dealing with uh, uh, Superman being killed by uh, 
Gog, and I'm assuming that's something from the uh, Kingdom Come storyline. Yeah, so Gog had been introduced in the New Year's Evil one-shot, and then took part in um, the sequel to Kingdom Come called The Kingdom, which oh, was yes. done by uh, Mark Wade, but without the involvement of Alex Ross. Okay. So it's a reference to that. And I seem to recall it was about um, God coming back in time trying to kill Superman, but I can't remember exactly many of the details. It's where Hypertime was introduced, if you're into your crazy stuff from the late 90s. Okay, uh, that's that's an inter- that's interesting, you know. Um... There's mentions on page 16 of the Ultramarine Call, which will turn up in the next JLA uh, story. And uh, General Eiling, who would then be put into the body of the Shaggy Man and become mm-hmm. a JLA villain. Yep, I, I distinctly remember that. And uh, I remember General Eiling's fate as well, which was uh, really nice at the end of that JLA storyline. Um, I, I, I agree. I like uh, how they're incorporating some of the lesser heroes here with uh, the rain, uh, Firestorm working on the. I also like the fact that uh, Martian Manhunter is using his morphing abilities to sort of uh, delay the Hourman virus from affecting him. I yep. think that was a very clever use of uh, the character's abilities. But uh, the Martian Manhunter just comes across great in these two issues here. I think uh, this is some of his uh, best stuff. And again, Superman 1 million with Up, Up, and Away. I never get tired of that. The fact that. Uh, uh, Vandal Savage uh, used the Rocket Red suits to, to basically as as nuclear missiles. Uh, to, just that that's actually pretty clever. However, the fact that he encapsulate or encased Supergirl in one of them, I think that Supergirl and then Jesse Quick along with uh, Speedy or Arsenal in them. How how Supergirl just couldn't make her way out of that just kind of befuddles me. But you know, whatever. It's the um, Earthbound Angel Supergirl. Oh, okay. The, the Linda uh, Linda Lee version. So, it, so it's not the uh, sort of uh, protoplasmic uh, Supergirl? What happened with that? No, it's the next evolution of that. Um, oh, okay. I, I need a better grounding in the Peter David Supergirl to explain exactly what happened. But not it was a like problem. the next stage in that. So it, it's a different power set and things like that. Okay, well, I'll get, I'll just, I'll just chalk it up to that. I, I like, uh, I'm moving on to book three, my notes. Uh, I like on, I guess it's page six, where we get, uh, the Adam, you know, figuring out how to fight the, uh, virus. Mm-hmm. It's basically going down to the, uh, subatomic level and punching the f- out of it. <laughs> that is just, the, that that's the it, it's the simplest way of doing it, and the the fact that the atom is, is he punching it. It looks like it. It looks like he's it, uh, put his hand into one of the or he's yeah. If he's not I, punching it, I don't he's think he's punching. I think he's opened it up like you would pop the bonnet on a car and you're like, okay, what's going on in here? Well, he's a I, scientist. It's what he would do. He would investigate. He wouldn't wouldn't punch so much as go right. Interesting. Well, I wouldn't mind if he would have punched it, but I think <laughs> I think if you're using the atom to take on all this stuff, and you know, uh, the next page is really great because we get you know, after he's taken apart, the human body just says, "Oh, this is an mm. this is an organism that's not supposed to be here," and the human body just reacts to it. So yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. But even though he's got a cure, as Nightwing points out, it's going to take time to manufacture and distribute an antidote, and things move quicker than that can happen. So they never actually cure the virus. Really? 
Well, yeah, because the, well, the virus is yes, the virus intelligence. Is, yeah. That's true. They're, it's drawn away by Solar by the production of Solar. So, um, I'm moving on to page nine. Yep. Uh Martian, Ma- Martian Manhunter versus Vandal Savage in his giant tank of doom. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the image of the Manhunter on this panel just it, it, again, it's one of those things I loved about Morrison when he was writing JLA that so many people dismissed the Manhunter and his power set and his power level. And they didn't realize that he was near Superman power and just this one image on this page of him taking this blast and the look of determination on his face and the energy coming off of it is just outstanding. Yeah, I, I think uh, although the power set was used differently in the Justice League TV series, the idea of John as being a, a key and important member of the JLA, which then translates into the Justice League thing, it, it, I always take that from my reading of the Morrison JLA. Mm-hmm. And frankly, any version where he's not, I don't like as much. Uh, it's one of my, although I'm really digging the Justice League book in the New 52, the fact that Martian Manhunter isn't a part of it bugs me. But that, that's me applying a fandom from years ago to something current, which is never the best way to look at anything. No, true. But that just leads to, uh, the Justice, you know, the Justice League, uh, developing Solaris and, uh, Solaris taking the virus which is again kind of trippy i'm looking at page 16 where he's uh pulling the virus from all the people on earth it's very life force maybe if you remember that movie yeah kind of uh you know them just sort of swallowing or sucking this sort of weird green energy out of them and that uh basically being the operating system or uh, whatever the intelligence of solaris there so yeah and the then the star man of the star man, 1 million redeeming himself. Uh, so, and, and it's done. Uh, the, the last few pages are done in, uh, caption boxes. There's really no talking. It's, uh, mm. and I'm wondering if this is something that, uh, was common in, because unfortunately I have not read the star man from the nineties, the James Robinson version. I'm wondering if this was kind of, uh, sort of a trope that went on during that. If Jack Knight sort of had these narration that was, uh, Put in caption boxes. I seem to remember. It's been a while since I've read uh, some Sandman, uh, Sandman, some Starman, (laughs) but I I remember that. I I seem to remember it was in a sort of a cursive type font. Um, But yeah, uh, it kind of is. It it also makes sense. It's you do it in caption boxes thoughts or you do it in that sort of Silver Age comic balloon where he's talking to no one whilst he's trying to create a black hole. Um, what I like is that final image of you've just got this Ted Knight's observatory and you just see the the light of the explosion um, after his his, his uh, power suit explodes. You just see that in the sky and that's a nice little touch and keeps that link between the first Starman and his uh, one further down the line. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's 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 a great yeah. little image right down there and it, it, uh, it it's a nice little quiet image that sort of. Uh, uh, portrays the the two generations and the the link between them. It's it's glorious. Um, a couple of things that are revealed here, which will become important, is we find out what the night fragment is, because when uh, Starman's being interrogated by Batman, he gives it up and basically it's kryptonite, and he needs to keep it. He needs to bury it under the sands of Mars. It's basically a kryptonite bullet, and Solaris is going to use it to assassinate Superman when he emerges from the sun. Mm-hmm. How I know Grant Morrison likes his superpowered bullets. Think of the one used 
against uh, that Batman uses against Darkseid, which Darkseid had used against Orion in Final Crisis. Um, but this is just great. It's just like, wow, I'm, I'm setting up a plan that's going to take millennia to come through. And that's echoed when Vandal Savage is defeated and he limps away and he goes, uh, not today, perhaps not tomorrow, but soon, if it takes 10,000 years, I can wait. I have forever. Mm-hmm. It's like you're going to be waiting millennia, but yeah. Yeah, and the the fact that they're pl- that Morrison is able to play this long game and play it mm. uh, so well and make it actually work, and the, the wonderful thing that I like at is it at the end of this book where the Huntress comes up? Yeah, yeah, where the Huntress sort of comes up with the idea of uh, you know, what they can do. It's hinted at the, that they have an idea of how to save all this since they know what's supposed to happen. They can mm. affect things at this time, so. Uh, this is a really good setup to that uh, to the final yeah. issue. The other thing that Huntress does, and she doesn't do it in this book or in any of the books we've looked at, but um, in order to create Solaris, they need the human DNA sample, and Huntress gets that. And the human she chooses is a great choice because it leads to one of the best moments in the fourth issue. Oh yes, but I'm ready. If you're ready to go ahead and kick off this fourth issue, this is yeah. gonna be fun. Okay, so the fourth issue. Solaris has gone completely psycho and he's attacking the entire solar system. With his computing power, the sun can counter any attack before it has even begun. However, having never fought against the Green Lantern, he struggles to resist Kyle's attacks. Green Lantern manages to increase Solaris's mass enough to trigger a conversion to supernova before nearly melting his mind trying to contain the effects of that nova. Because obviously if there was a sun going fully supernova, it would destroy the entire solar system, which is kind of what Solaris wants to do anyway. Um, His resolve is supported by the return of Superman 1 million from the present, who has returned by basically punching his way through time and nearly killing himself in the process. Superman 1 million uses his psychic powers to reinforce and contain Solaris. Unfortunately, Solaris has an ace up its sleeve, which is the Night Fragment, which by this point Vandal Savage has dug up and given to Solaris. Just as Solaris has been in case, he fires the Fragment at the Sun, and as we've just found out, the Fragment is green, and it's a kryptonite bullet to kill the Prime Superman at the moment of his re-emergence. Or at least it would be, if it wasn't for the fact that Resurrection Man, Martian Manhunter and Huntress have basically fooled him in a millennia-long conspiracy. The kryptonite has been destroyed and replaced by the most powerful green item in existence. Altogether now, the Green Lantern Ring. As the Green Lantern logo forms on the sun, a giant construct appears and destroys the remains of Solaris. Prime Superman has returned to the joy of the entire solar system. Now in the days to come, the DNA sample, which was used to help build Solaris, is revealed to be Lois Lane's and is used to recreate Lois for Superman Prime. Then Krypton is reborn and Superman is reunited with his father. The Justice League return home, and in a touch of complete irony, the time-travelling anti-hero known as Kronos sabotages future Vandal Savage's teleporting gauntlets, uh, which are Starman's time-travelling gauntlets. No, they aren't, sorry. Uh, they're John Fox's, the Flash's time-travelling gauntlets. And he uh, programs them so that he materialises in the city of Montevideo just before the, re- uh, just before the rocket red suit explodes. A victim of his own plans, Vandal Savage finally dies.
this was, you know, uh, I don't care what people say about modern Morrison. This is amazing. This is a wonderful ending. There are so many moments where I'm just looking at the pages and just smiling with a huge grin on my face at how how reverential and how wonderful and how fun this stuff is. It's uh, I, it's hard to explain. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, then you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll try and go and explain it. I like, uh, you know, if you want to start out, I like the idea. And obviously this is, oh, I don't know how common this is. You know, we usually associate the uh, idea of uh, Superman punching through the walls of reality with uh, Infinite Crisis. I don't know if this is the first time it's used. I'm assuming it probably isn't. But, you know, the Superman 1 million punching through the energy barrier to try and get uh, through the time stream and just, uh, you know, the 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 buildup of it, the, mm. the sort of uh, you know, the fact that he's aging himself, that he's that this Superman is like every other Superman. He's willing to do everything possible, even to the point of his possible death to try and save people. And it's, it's, it's done so well here. Yeah, it is. It's been set up in the Superman titles, but as he uses it, cause he's powered by the sun from the future. He's not really affected by the yellow sun in our present. So as he uses his powers, and he's got many more powers than Superman does, he's slowly losing them, and then that translates, in, and he's uh, starting to grow old as well. So mm-hmm. he's putting everything into it. Um, there's lovely little bits like um, the Flash isn't involved in the direct assault because uh, because Solaris is thinking so fast, they need someone who can also be fast. So he basically becomes a tactician mm-hmm. uh, working with them there. Yeah, I like that. Um... I enjoyed a little, uh, the, you know, the thing, the thing that comes across for me is this is for me, it's Kyle, Kyle in this, this is, this is the one, it's not the one reason I love this so much, but it's one of the reasons I love it so much throughout my run on the show. There has been so many times that Ron Mars and well, specifically Ron Mars has had to try and validate Kyle as the Green Lantern for the time. Throughout this run, uh, the DC 1 million, it's been said that Kyle is the only Green Lantern. You know, from the 20th century on, there have been no other Green Lanterns. They're trying to make it that Kyle is the Green Lantern. So what do they have to do? They have to give him an ultimate feat to do. What they did here was they gave Kyle sort of the ultimate test of his Green Lantern power. He is supposed to contain the power of a star going supernova. Uh, Try try and think about that. Even though this isn't a a star on the size of the sun, which really isn't that big of a star, having to contain the energy of that is near as nearly as mind boggling as trying to wrap your head around the fact that this is being set in the 853rd century. And Mm. the fact that, up until uh, Superman 1 million comes around, Kyle is doing this. He's containing the energy of a supernova going off. So it is just, it, it's, this is the one of the uh, most amazing things I think this character does. And you hear everyone you know, saying about, oh, Hal Jordan did this, Hal Jordan did that. Did Hal Jordan contain a sun from going kablooey? 
I don't think so. This is why Kyle, for me, is one of the greatest Green Lantern characters that has been written. And I'm uh, so glad that Morrison gave him the opportunity to do this. I, I think it's a bit of a shame you're not looking at the JLA series as part of the show because Carl got an incredibly good uh, focus in there. Um, he was kind of played as... There, there was an element of self-doubt in that, not helped by the fact that Wally could have been more sympathetic to him and Wally was a bit of a dick at times. But I think of things like when Mageddon attacks in the World War Three thing... And basically implants Carl with some kind of, for the want of a better word, an anti-willpower virus that means that he can't concentrate or focus. And I just remember him, there's a point where he's doing absolutely anything he can to try and beat him. Somebody says something like, you know, you're the last one, you're the one they chose. It's like, you're Green Lantern, you have willpower, get over it. And he suddenly clicks and completely destroys this thing, planting him by an ancient evil beyond the dawn of time, whatever Mageddon was. It just There are awesome moments for Carl all throughout JLA. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the, that's the other thing. Not only has Ron Mars been incredibly respectful of Kyle, but Grant Morrison even more so. Grant Morrison really mm-hmm. had a good handle on the character of Kyle. He, he developed him a lot. He gave him the, uh, he gave him the opportunity to do these amazing things. And this is just, primarily one of them i don't have a full run of morrison's jla i think i have it i think i left right in the middle of world war three and i'm not certain if that's where uh morrison ends his run or if it's after that i'm trying to but world war three was the last of morrison's issues okay Uh, he he built up to that with hints like uh, with things like uh super world and stuff like that beforehand so uh, you know after I get done, you know, I've got things plotted out for a while. Maybe I will go see about taking a look at that. But I know um, Charlie Niebuyer covered kind of in general or was covering uh, the JLA issues when he was doing his, um, oh, not Superman in the Bronze Age, but Charlie's Geek Cast. So if you want to hear about uh, uh, people synopsizing the JLA stuff, especially Morrison's JLA, go ahead and check out Charlie's Geek Cast. Always good show. Um, but yeah, just him taking out this sun it's just, i i just can't talk about how amazing it is and then we get you know the the launching of this green night fragment which everyone thinks up until the point of it happening is a piece of kryptonite and even superman thinks it but uh, i hmm. love the little bit where uh, superman is racing up against it uh yeah. it's on panel 14 and he goes you know wait it's not and it as it crashes into the sun you're like oh no Superman Prime is killed, and you get to the next, you know, uh, not the next page, but you get to that uh, page 16, the image of the sun with a Green Lantern symbol in it. And you know, you know from here that Solaris has been duped Mm. by the 20th century Huntress and, you know, tens of thousands of years of just waiting this out, that the night fragment that was supposed to be kryptonite was actually a Green Lantern ring. Now, I, the, the, uh, one of the things I love about how it's set up is um, at the end of the Resurrection Man issue, Resurrection Man was fatally wounded and going to die and not come back. And you basically get these occasional panels with him and Martian Manhunter on Mars as uh, Mitchell Shelley's dying. And the panel just before you see that, where um, 
he realizes what's going on and John explains what's going on. It's like Solaris thinks John says Solaris thinks he assassinated Superman Prime. Instead, he unwittingly handed him the most powerful weapon in the universe, disguised as Kryptonite for eighty three thousand years, buried, ready, and then you just see the Green Lantern logo. It's just, it's such a great build up. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it it is. It's a credit to Morrison that he 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 keeps moving the plot along and you it's like a it's like a well-paced action movie where mm. where things build on each other and tensions build and you know you finally get this wonderful release of you know seeing the sun with the green lantern symbol and seeing this giant ring construct hand come and just after both superman one million and kyle have been trying to contain solaris just the hand coming out crushing solaris and then the next page it's an it's an unusual costume, but it is very nice just to see Superman in the yeah. sort of glowy golden. energy, golden. Uh, yes, it's oh, it's just so awesome. Now and again, that's led into nicely. You see him at the bottom of the page in almost complete silhouette, and, and there's a little bit of light on his chest emblem mm-hmm. and on his spit curl and of the all spit things. Curl. Oh yes, and it's... just when he says, "My friends, it's good to see you all again," and it's, it's just this glorious panel of him. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's now. Do you want to go ahead and uh, kind of discuss how this ties in with All Star Superman? Um. Well, the very simple answer is it doesn't. Okay. Um. There are certain similarities. So, uh, I think if you ever read All Star Superman, you know that the final uh, few pages involve Superman who's dying, going into the sun, and he basically sets him up himself up in the sun with the energy of the sun keeping him alive, but also he's working to keep the sun going. I think there was this wonderful image of him in a forge, and people go, oh, Superman in the sun, that must be a precursor to DC 1 million. Okay. Well, the key thing is it isn't, because in DC 1 million, uh, I want to say it's the Man of Tomorrow issue, where the Platinum, the Metal Man, the last surviving Metal Man, relates to our Superman, the story of the Superman dynasty. And that Superman had been around for a long time. He'd gone off traveling uh clearly on some kind of weird gap year um but he he had gone and done other things and then retreated into the sun a long time later i think he defeated an evil evil superman or something i can't quite remember the details but yeah there are whilst the big thematic similarities are the same they're not uh, i i know uh, i think solaris turns up in the fortress of solitude as well in the second issue mm-hmm. um but, I mean, the idea of Superman being in the sun and, and setting up home in there in the Fortress of Solitude is such a big idea. It shouldn't really just be confined to one use of it, and that's it. And I, I'm, It was such a great use in All-Star Superman. It's such a great use here, uh, but completely differently in terms of how they're viewed. Yeah, now that you now that you mention it, yeah, there is... The connection is only the fact that it's the same storyline. It's not that the two actual... Uh, mm. The two actual elements yeah. are con- are contiguous. This isn't the same Superman that went into the sun. This is something else. But yeah, so I can see why people would have thought that because the this there was a trade of DC One Million which went out of print in the early two thousands, and that was it. It was never reprinted as far as I'm aware through to the Omnibus last year. So when also Superman was coming out and people had their half memories of it, uh, because you always forget detail if you don't read something for a long time, and it, it was an easy thing to say oh it was that until you actually go and look at it again mm-hmm. uh moving on to the next page after this after superman's return the piece of dna that they mm-hmm. used to construct solaris 
Yeah. And oh, it's yes. Lois. And oh, it's yes. never actually said, oh, this is Lois. It's just they embrace and uh, Sigma says, my wife, and Lois says, my husband. And mm-hmm. of course it is. Oh, it's it's just wonderful. And yeah, the, 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 the Superman of this time gets gets everything he wanted. He gets his yeah. wife. He gets Who will live as long as he does, mm-hmm. presumably. He gets his he gets his planet back. He gets Krypton back, and he gets to meet with his father. Oh, it's just it, it is so wonderful. And the 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 circular panel on uh, page twenty, just the the Superman of the eight hundred fifty third century, just turning to look at the camera and give that little wink. Yeah. Oh, it is so perfect. It so symbolizes the just the I, I can't really think of words right now to describe it. It just describes the the grandeur and the majesty and the 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 humanity of the character of Superman and that that Morrison and Samik have such a respect for them and are able to portray this so well. It's just glorious and uh, oddly enough again tying into green lantern it's green lantern who's relating this tale to the rest of the justice league here mm. so I, I i really like that um and, and we get the little wrap up with wally saying hey you finally you know had a feat status so you know i'm glad that they're recognizing that kyle actually had a a, a legitimate you know bona fide superhero feat so that's that's great, but there are after this there are things that are set up for uh, for different things going on in the JLA book. Uh, yeah, um, obviously they're going to set that up. Uh, I'm not certain what's happening between Barda and Zariel. Uh, do we want to talk about any about, about that, or is that just you know something for a JLA book? I don't remember. I'll be okay. honest. Um, I suspect it's something to do with Mageddon because everything leads into that, but I couldn't tell you the specifics of it. But then we get the final, the the, the final yeah. page, and this is this is outstanding. This is this is justice. Vandal Savage from the 853rd century has used his used uh, John Fox's time gauntlets to transport back to Earth, where he thinks he will rule. He thinks he will rule. Mm. And it sets him right down just at the moment of explosion in Montevideo as he looks up and sees the rocket red uniform coming crashing in. It is. It's very satisfying. Oh, yes, it's absolutely it is. It is just the ending you want to have. And it's great because you can give a final end to Vandal Savage without ever negating any story anyone ever wants to tell with him because no one's ever going to go, well, I want to do a Vandal Savage story set in the 900th century. Yeah. I mean, I think I think going in 853 centuries, you've got plenty of storyline to go. So, mm. yeah, the, they can tell stories with him till the end of time but so uh essentially do you consider this to be the end of vandal savage i mean yes there oh, yeah. are other stories so oh th- yes this was this was amazing the the artwork the storyline a lot of people nowadays will will rag on grant morrison for being very trippy but i think this is just a incredibly well thought out incredibly reverential and just incredibly fun storyline. Mm. 
I think uh, the reputation of this storyline ha- wasn't helped by a, a poor choice for the trade paperback because so many issues have small bits of the plot in them. It made it difficult to contain. So what DC did, they basically printed the four issues of this. They printed the JLA issue. I think they printed the Green Lantern issue and one of the Superman issues, which was, I, I want to say, the Man of Tomorrow one, which explains the legacy, but left out so much more. So so many things like, oh, you know, one of the one million issues ended with a cliffhanger of the Titans inside the rocket red suits. And it turned out, I think there were three different issues where they got free. I, I seem to remember the Wonder Woman issue is where Supergirl's broken free, for instance. Superman deals with another of the rocket reds. Um, there are so many bits of the story that are missed if you only try and read the core series in a couple of times. It's why, as a whole, it works so well, because nothing feels unimportant. But when you try and collect it, you're sitting there going, mm, how do we do this? And what they didn't do was, I, I felt what they should have done is, we might be uncomfortable, but a couple of text pages between each issue saying, in this issue, this happened, in this issue, this happened. We find out here this is important so that it read more smoothly because it was a very disjointed read. It was one of the first trades I ever read. Um, and it was very, very difficult to get my head around because there was so much that was missing and it didn't read smoothly. And you knew there was stuff that wasn't being printed. So, Well, one of the things I think they could have done, and I'm looking at the back of you know just issue one here, they have a one-page little DC million week one thing and yeah. simply by printing those in the in the trade i think that could have helped bridge the gap a little bit between the different stories so mm. unfortunately i guess you know dc just didn't take that hard i mean that would have been easy to sort of reprint in that original trade but but now they have the uh the omnibus out and supposedly i'm assuming it covers all the comics that uh came out during the storyline during this month yeah um what was nice is when you read some of the individual issues is they also have that thing at the front where uh, it did a really good job explaining what was important for you to read that issue. So if you were reading an issue set in the future, there was very little information given about what was happening in the present because it wasn't relevant to that issue. Same way, if you're reading in the present with Superman 1 million fighting the Arman virus, it wasn't telling you. And then this has happened to Green Lantern in the future and this has happened to Wonder Woman in the future. It gave you the information you needed to know. So when you get something like Peter David Supergirl, it just goes, yeah, we're in the future. Anyway, it's the future. Don't worry, it's the future. Let's have some fun. (laughs) Uh, Well, and I think you hit it on the head. Uh, The one thing that I really, really thought I took away from this story was fun. Yes, Mm. it was reverential. Yes, it had some very heady concepts. But overall, it was fun. And that's been the thing that I've been looking for in comics. And I think this delivered it you know in spades it's it's brilliant um there are some very well regarded tie-in issues along the way um the martian madhunt one which we looked at for a bit it, not just michael bailey saying this i've seen it said over and over again it's one of the best tie-in issues of a crossover you'll ever read um the young justice tie-in issue which uh, Young Justice was only about three issues old at this point. And with the way Peter David built up the team, they hadn't even got around to introducing the women who were, would be on the team, like Wonder Girl and uh, Arrowette and people like that. So Peter David did this great thing where basically the future Young Justice, including Robin the Toy Wonder, um, misremember the adventures of their uh, 
their present day counterparts. So like when Superboy's recounting what happened with Doomsday, he basically has Doomsday beats up every other hero in the world. Then the original Superboy comes and uh, he pushes the Earth slightly to one side and Doomsday's left floating in space. And all just crazy stuff like that, um, which was very fun. The Hitman issue is very well regarded because it was basically Garth Ennis and John McRae taking the piss. Um, what else was there? The the Chase issue, I seem to remember. Do you remember the character of Chase, Cameron Chase? Yes, I do. Uh, in fact, uh, Thomas DJ recommended, I need to go pick up that trade because Thomas yeah. DJ recommended that and said it was a great story, a very underrated uh, series that only ran, like, I think 12 issues. and maybe I including... think it was 10 issues, including the 1 million. Okay. But then kept popping up as a supporting character, like she was in the Manhunter series from the mid-2000s, for instance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously Batgirl, uh, Batgirl, Batwoman. Um, yeah, uh, there was one more which I had now, I've forgotten it. There was one more I was going to mention, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, uh, my understanding is there, there were very, very few bad issues and lots of great ones. Well, from just the, just the limited ones that we've looked at, they've all been just spectacular, not only story wise, but art wise as well. Uh, I, I'm, I wish there could be more. These single month crossovers, I really prefer because you've got them all. You know, if you're collecting the, if you're just collecting a few titles, you know, all you have to do is collect those titles and this one month worth of comics. So you're not out that. The, the idea of the whole overarching multi-month storylines that we had, you know, in the late 2000s just kind of, I think, burned a lot of people out. If, if we could go back this sort of era of storytelling where it's kind of compressed and it's all put forth in one month, it, I think it would work a lot better. At least it works a lot better for me. I think there are pros and cons to each kind of way of doing it. Uh, when I think of one of my favorite crossovers ever, it's Infinite Crisis, which is a seven-month monthly thing, very, very well-coordinated. And I absolutely love that because it was a great story. It had, it felt like it was happening to the entire DC universe. Um, however, you get something like uh, Secret Invasion, which just turned me off the Marvel crossovers completely because I, when I was buying both Mighty Avengers and New Avengers, which did nothing but constant flashback behind the scenes storytelling. Oh, you thought this was happening in the Kree Skull War. This is what actually happened kind of stories, which just eight months, I think they were eight issues each. So 16 issues of that with no distinction between the titles that burnt me completely. I'm really enjoying Forever Evil at the moment, which is one issue a month, but a great storyline. And I like the way that some of the books are tying in, Others are set in that past and will eventually reach a point where it's like, okay, now our character's going to Forever Evil and we'll pick up afterwards. Because I don't think you could do 52 times a month to that. No one would want that. Um, but then you look at a book like Batgirl that I've dropped because the constant tie-ins to other things just, it was too much for me. Uh, it derailed Gail Simone's plotting because you would have something like it would tell that and then it would do a zero year issue and then it would do a villain's month issue. Or technically, Batgirl stopped for Villains Month, and it did something else. It's just like I just want to get to the end of the story with Batgirl and her dad and the, their brother, and why can't I get this? Mm. Well, I think I think it's a testament to you, know, regardless of uh, what type of you know crossover event that you like, that it's a testament to Morrison for coming up with a cohesive one that that engages you and entertains you, and it just is comic book storytelling at probably some of its best yeah I, I think if i'd have been 
I was being a comic book buyer back in, in the day and my pull list and suddenly this came along and because this is sort of early days of the internet I might not have been aware of it I think I would have enjoyed the issues that I'd have had as opposed to uh, more often than not if I get a, a crossover issue that I wasn't expecting I'm probably less likely to enjoy it there, there are exceptions like uh, the Everything Burns storyline between Journey to Mystery and Mighty Thor I really didn't want to read Mighty Thor because I don't think Matt Fraction writes a particularly good f- uh, particularly good Thor, especially after Fear itself, and yet it turned out that was one of the best uh, crossovers I'd ever read. It was it was great. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. I think the the monkey though, if you don't like it, you can't avoid it. Yeah, you know, if you're you're stuck with Genesis and you read the first couple of issues out and go, oh my god, this is crap. That's <laughs> every book I'm buying from DC is going to be crap for this month because it ties into this piece of crap. Yeah. Sadly, and, unfortunately. And it, it it's a difficult line to cross. I'd hate to be an editor in charge of working out the scope of a crossover. I really would. I know we mentioned Blackest Night earlier, and obviously Blackest Night was its own series, plus the two Green Lantern books. At least by doing the mini-series approach, rather than forcing everything else to tie into it, you could make a very clear and definite choice of, yes, I'm buying this, no, I'm not. Rather than, oh, well, I was reading Superman, but now I've got three months of Superman Blackest Night stories that I don't want to read. Oh, I agree. Gave you the walk away or stick around option, whereas something like, uh, again, the Marvel books tend to absorb the Avengers, the Marvel crossovers tend to absorb the Avengers books into them quite regularly, which yeah. is one of the reasons why I will be very unlikely to buy an Avengers book again for a long time. Oh, disappointing. But uh, this was this was just amazing. I I completely enjoyed uh, reading this or rereading this, and I really enjoyed having you on, Stephen. I, I, I can't tell you how thankful i am that you came on and gave such a uh incredible synopsis to this stuff and uh really filled me in on a lot of the backstory of this thank you very much for doing this no thank you for having me it was great to um go back and read this in detail and try and expand my reading as much as i could with what i had available to me um yeah if i had 75 quid i would have the omnibus uh yeah that's that's a lot of money <laughs> Mm. But uh, yeah, it it would probably be worth it. Stephen, uh, as we're wrapping up here, I would like to again thank you and uh, go ahead and let you give an, uh, give you an opportunity to uh, plug where it, what you're doing on the internet right now. Well, the, the main thing for me is the Fantastic Cast. Uh, you're going to the oh, may sound better than the usual thing I trip out. Um, that's myself and Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics sitting down every week, take a look at Silver Age Fantastic Four. We we started nearly two and a half years ago with Fantastic Four number one. We're now in the mid-60s, having covered every issue of Strange Tales and every sort of a moment where the Fantastic Four would pop up in other Marvel comics along the way. Um, yeah, we're having a great time with that. So if you've ever wanted to find out more about the fantastic run of Stanley and Jack Kirby, some of the best comics published in the 1960s, it's definitely your thing to get on with. Uh, we're on iTunes as the Fantasticast. The show's website is ffcast libsyn.com uh, we're on twitter where we are at fantasticast so you know drop by and give a listen with i think we're a fun enjoyable show i i um, wholeheartedly agree excellent and that's not just because i paid you right uh i'll be assuming the check will be getting here eventually mm, yes okay then <laughs> um, yes, aside from Aside from that, you can find me on Twitter as at QuizLacey as well. And I occasionally pop up on other shows, um, some Doctor Who thing. 
Yeah, I need to I need to get with you. We need to work uh, something out where we're going to be doing another Doctor Who episode eventually. But yeah, it's been a while. But yeah. But uh, Stephen, again, thanks for coming on, and thanks everyone for downloading and listening this episode, episode one million of Just One of the Guys. <laughs> Next time we revert to our normal uh, numbering system with issue one hundred and seven, and. Uh, We'll be doing that uh, next week. So, everyone, thanks again for downloading and listening, and we will catch you all next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast.